a lot of the brands that have gotten behind, they number one didn't fully appreciate how fast and how profoundly things were changing. Retail for a long time, at least early in my career, things didn't change all that quickly because almost all of retail was done in a physical store. And, and really the marketing and the customer acquisition and the customer engagement was done in a physical store. So even disruptive business models took a fairly long time to roll out just because of the sheer pace of, of capital and, and store openings. So in a world where things started to shift more profoundly to digital influence, whether it resulted in a transaction online uh, or in a store, uh, you know, that, that pace just kept kept going. So I think I think the pace and the profound disruption was underestimated by a lot of retailers. I think the second thing, frankly, is to think about e-commerce as a separate thing, uh, because even when many brands started to say, oh, this e-commerce thing is going to be pretty big, they largely set it up as a separate channel. And that caused them to make the wrong investments in many cases or go about marketing or not make the changes in the physical stores they needed to make. So I think it's been both a kind of profound misunderstanding of how shopping was evolving, but not also appreciating that you just have to experiment more. You have to act more quickly. You have to be willing to blow up maybe what got you to a level of success, but it's not going to keep you there going forward. Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader podcast with me, Maria Vorostovsky. I'm the founder and CEO of HVO Search. Founders, CEOs and lone HR directors hire me when they feel stuck and under pressure to hire the right senior leaders who will transform their companies. I'm on a mission to discover what makes a great leader, the skills they have and what really drives them to dissect what success looks like and what it takes to get to the very top. My aim is to bring to you leadership stories of entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, investors, authors, leaders from all walks of life, the failures they faced, what they wish they knew before they started and the hurdles they had to overcome. If you want to be inspired, surprised, and feel like you're not alone in your struggles towards the very top, you're in the right place here on Anatomy of a Leader. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. It will challenge the way you think and may even change your life. Today, I have a wonderful guest, a retail industry veteran and thought leader, a consultant, strategic advisor, keynote speaker, podcast host, Forbes senior retail contributor. A little bit of everything. Exactly. He's none other than Steve Dennis, the author of a book called Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, which is what I'd like to talk about in today's episode. Steve is the president of Sageberry Consulting. He was previously chief strategy officer an SVP multi-channel marketing for the Neiman Marcus Group, and he holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk to you. And you as well. So, obviously, the change the pandemic has had on our lives, our work, our shopping behavior has been dramatic, accelerating the trends that have already been happening in the world. And in your book, you talk about these changes and offering insights and guidance to how retailers can survive this age of disruption. I I liked one of the quotes that you used there, which is um, only when the tide goes out, 
do you discover who's been swimming naked, which is a quote by Warren Buffett. And I think that's really, really okay. fitting. And I think everything is unraveling as we speak when it comes to that. So I guess my first question that I'd like to talk to you about is what did retail leaders get so wrong about e-commerce prior to the pandemic? Well, probably a couple things. One is, I think a lot of the brands that have gotten behind, they, number one, didn't fully appreciate how fast and how profoundly things were changing. Retail for a long time, at least early in my career, things didn't change all that quickly because almost all of retail was done in a physical store. And, and really the marketing and the customer acquisition and the customer engagement was done in a physical store. So even disruptive business models took a fairly long time to roll out just because of the sheer pace of, of capital and, and store openings. So in a world where things started to shift more profoundly to digital influence, whether it resulted in a transaction online uh, or in a store, uh, you know, that, that pace just kept kept going. So I think I think the pace and the profound disruption was underestimated by a lot of retailers. I think the second thing, frankly, is to think about e-commerce as a separate thing, uh, because even when many brands started to say, oh, this e-commerce thing is going to be pretty big, they largely set it up as a separate channel. And that caused them to make the wrong investments in many cases or go about marketing or not make the changes in the physical stores they needed to make. So I think it's been both a kind of profound misunderstanding of how shopping was evolving, but not also appreciating that you just have to experiment more, you have to act more quickly, you have to be willing to blow up maybe what got you to a level of success, but it's not going to keep you there going forward. I think the second point you're talking about is just operating in silos and having e-commerce is a completely different channel. And I know you talk about in your book about not even using that because customers don't see channels. And right. you know, one of the things you talk about is the customer being the channel. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, I'd love to say that it's an original idea, but um, I think that, I mean, it's definitely true from my experience, both at retailers and, and in consulting and looking at research that Customers don't, customers think about brands. Uh, and certainly by now, most customers have gotten comfortable with the idea that um, a retailer that was predominantly physical retail for years now has a website. They've gotten comfortable with the idea that they can get on their smart device and they can research prices, locations, inventory things. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what now used to be, I go to a store or I go at home or in my office to get on the computer is now blurred by virtue of smart devices that doesn't have, don't have us tethered to location. So we used to talk about the customer being the channel 20 years ago. Like, I don't, I don't think this is a new idea. It's just that some retailers took it more seriously than others. And then as time has gone on, it's become much more obvious that digital influences physical and physical influences digital. So if you set yourself up in a siloed way, if you don't understand the role of digital driving people into the store or people going into stores and later buying online, 
you're really going to misallocate your marketing. You're probably not going to be structured in the right way from a fulfillment standpoint. Your stores are probably not designed the same way. So all of this has just been building over time. I think that uh, COVID certainly um, uh, caused an advantage for retailers that already knew this and had acted. And for those that were much slower to act, their results were, were much worse. I guess that divide um, in the middle is really highlighted by the pandemic. It's just a, you know, an extreme version of that. And as you said, you know, retailers that have been prepared for this shift already are just miles and miles ahead. So to the old dogs, what new tricks must they learn? Well, there are probably a bunch. I mean, a lot of it, I hate to give you a, it depends answer, but there's such, um, and this is one of the things I think that Austin also gets wrong, or people get wrong, in the narrative about retail is there's quite a lot of differences depending on what category you're talking about, right? So if something can be digitally downloaded, for example, that's you know music, games, books, you know things like that. That's quite a lot different than say the grocery industry with frozen food and fresh food. Right? So so just from a characteristics of how the customer shops and how things are fulfilled, things can be quite different. But I would say you know number one, if you are a traditional retailer you've got to go even deeper than you probably think you have on understanding your customers. You have to get more precise about who your business is for, because one of the things that's happened over the last 10 years, I would say in particular is, and I talk about it in the book is the collapse of the middle is you used to have retailers that could be successful across a pretty wide spectrum of different business models. But once you can get access the consumer can get access to just about any product they want, anytime. Anything that's really more task-driven, convenience-oriented, uh, there's very little reason for a store to exist if it's largely a commodity. You can just order it online or go to just a few stores that have a little bit of everything and are more price and convenience dominated. So we've seen a lot of success and migration to the value end of the spectrum, the convenience end of the spectrum, whether that's physical or online, Amazon is the most obvious. And then we've seen a migration out of the middle to higher end retailers or more specialized retailers that have a unique environment or unique service or unique product. And anybody in the middle has, has really gotten trapped. And that's frankly where most of the store closings and most bankruptcies are. Like it's very, very concentrated in those retailers that, that didn't really pick a lane. So, so you have to decide which customers you are really most focused on. You have to understand their needs very specifically and you have to meet them in a very remarkable way. Um, so do you think retailers have had it too easy up until now? Um, I don't know as a general rule. I mean, certainly lots of categories have been incredibly tough. I mean, way back when, when I worked at Sears Roebuck and company, a moderate department store, uh, things were getting pretty tough in that business in the late nineties. Uh, we, every moderate department store in the United States. And I think in a lot of other markets, um, were, was starting to lose share. Um, so that's been a tough business for a long time. Uh, other categories, like I think the grocery business, you know, haven't been that disrupted until until fairly recently, and everything in between. Um, but you know, if you really the, the one of the messages I try to, um, or a couple messages I try to get forward in the book is one: you have to spend a lot of time 
being aware of what is going on. And as I said earlier, things are changing so quickly, not only technology, but distribution, consumer preferences, how, how you know, social media works, et cetera. So you have to be really, really aware of what's going on for the customers that you seek to retain, grow, or acquire. You also have to accept when things are fundamentally changed. And this is where a lot of retailers, you know, they may have been doing their research, they might've been talking at conferences, but they didn't really accept how much change was necessary. Uh, but then once you get that acceptance, you have to be willing to take action. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, I think action is um, a lot of experimentation. It's the creative destruction of the models that you have because too many retailers are over-invested in a certain culture, they're over-invested in a certain format, and you know maybe supply chain and technology is as well. Um, so I say it can be a pretty big, it can be a pretty big difference. Some retailers certainly have more time to affect a transformation um, than others. Uh, others are already either out of business or on their way out of business if they don't really change a lot. I think this goes beyond retail as well in terms of businesses not really that have not really focused that much on their customer and more about mm -hmm. the products and the services and whatever it is that they think needs to be out there in the world. And I think as a result mm -hmm. of technology, social media, we do have now that communi communication with the customer. They can tell you what they want or what they don't want. And the data, right. in terms of harnessing the data and really extracting insights from that is mm -hmm. really critical to success because sure. you really see in real life, in real time, what is actually going on, but really understanding both on a practical level and a psychological level of what the customers want, or at least anticipating what the needs are and you know what problem that you want to be trying to solve for them is, is something that is so crystal clear for me in terms of all of the businesses have to adapt this strategy and trying to really get under the skin of, of that. Yeah, I think if you are, I mean, I certainly know more about retail than, than lots of other categories, but I think one of the things that, and, and perhaps it's an obvious point, but chapter two of the book, I talk about uh, what I call the end of scarcity. And what I mean by that is pre-internet brands, whether we're talking about a hotel brand or a restaurant or a retailer or a car manufacturer, they held a lot of the cards because you could only get their product in a fairly limited number of, um, of places. And for the most part, a few exceptions like with mail order catalog, but for the most part, the consumer had to go down to that location or go to a bunch of locations, maybe talk to a salesperson. You know, that was the way you collected information. That's the way you got to see what was on offer, whether you're buying a car or a dishwasher or a sweater. And really your access to information about the product um, there was a lot of friction associated with that. And a lot of the marketing was kind of big brand marketing and, and limited kind of promotions, radio, TV, those, those sorts of things. The internet started to really flip that power to the consumer as they had more access, uh, more choice, um, more information, uh, you name it. And so those, those retailers that didn't understand that dynamic uh, or brands really started to perhaps get behind. Uh, but they also now did have, if they wanted to leverage it, 
more of an ability to get deeper information about customers and perhaps to leverage that insight in a more direct way because you could start to identify customers more individually. You know, a lot of when I was at Sears, for example, in the 90s, um, we were a little bit lucky because we had our own private label credit card business. And so we had a little bit more access to data. But for the most part, the customers that walked in our door, we had no idea who they were individually and we couldn't address them individually. We were doing TV ads and radio ads and, and big print ads. So that that whole thing has really, really flipped and the retailers or brands that understood that got ahead of it, made the right investments, um, still have to have a really good product or a really good service and a really good experience. I'm not saying that that's not important, but it's a whole other dimension of competing um, that's really evolved in the last 10 or 15 years. I think your your point about scarcity and just having so much choice out there in the world now because you know we we're not limited to the physical location where we're living in now we see you know we can right. get from all over the world if we really wanted to so that just the the sheer number of things and places that you can shop from is is mm -hmm. enormous and so in order to be able to compete with that you know you really have to be very very knowledgeable about your customer Right. And you have to, there has to be some value added. You know, if I just want a coffee pot, you know, I sometimes will say when I, when I speak, um, I would sometimes start off and this, this doesn't work so well if there's a, a number of younger people in the audience because they don't remember. But I say, you know, try to picture yourself 20 years ago and think about needing a dishwasher or a sweater or a coffee pot. How, you know, wherever you lived, wherever you worked, how many places could you go buy that item? And usually it's just a handful. And, you know, what if you wanted to buy that item, uh, you know, at 10 a.m.? I mean, at uh, 10 p.m., right? Maybe, you know, the stores were closed. You could, and so, but now if it's just an item that you pretty much know what you want, you just want to get a good price and you just want it to turn up at your apartment or your office or whatever in, a, in one or two days' time, there's just dozens and dozens of places to go. So if there's nothing value added about the product being unique or the service being unique or the experience really being unique, it, it's just too easy to, to have your business obliterated essentially, unless you can go head to head with some of the big players. And I always say, you know, you don't want to try to out Amazon, Amazon. Um, you know, there's only a few players in the world that can really go head to head on those products and categories, which are mostly about price and convenience. So for most retailers, you're going to have to do something really, really different to distinguish yourself, um, or you just risk, you know, getting into price wars that you can't win, or, or having to invest in technology that you'll be constantly trying to play catch up, but you're not going to out technology, um, Walmart or Amazon or a few other players. Mm. I, one of the main points that I get away from your book is the idea, obviously, of being remarkable, but also mm -hmm. the idea of experimentation, innovation, and taking risks and being bold. Because mm -hmm. I feel like from, from me having been in the industry as a third party, as a recruiter, still observing what's happening and a lot of retailers just not innovating and just keeping the status quo and just waiting and waiting and hoping for right. you know, the world to change in their favor rather than adapt. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
I think a lot of life is really trial and error. And how can you harness that power of trial and error and innovation? Who do you think is doing a good job now with, with regards to that? Well, I think there are different kinds of innovation, right? There's, there's marketing innovation, more testing, personalization, you know, say these kinds of things. There's more service innovation, um, you know, these, some of the companies that really adva um, were advantaged during COVID had already stood up by online pickup and store curbside pickup, you know, they weren't forced into it. So I think there are retailers, you know, Walmart, Best Buy, many others that are constantly tweaking aspects of their, their operations. The ones that I think are more interesting from a legacy perspective are those that are really experimenting with their go-to-market strategy in, in a fundamentally different way. And Nike is one that I would point to. Um, they certainly, as I'm sure many listeners would know, have, have started to make a pivot, um, but really started five or six years ago, of, of limiting their distribution, uh, being less reliant on wholesalers, and going more direct to consumer, whether that's with their own website or with their own stores. But what they've been doing with their stores um, is trying a bunch of different formats, everything from their house of innovation, more kind of flagship stores, which are um, in just a few markets, to Nike Live and Nike Rise, which are more focused stores with um, more local assortment, more of a data, data play. So um, one of the things I, which I touch a little bit on the book, but I've been really getting into lately and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out is i do see a move it's what i call the hybridization of, of retail and some of that is the more obvious kind of the hybrid shopping nature of digital and physical being blended and blurred uh, but i th think for the most part most retailers generally have kind of one core format that they like to operate uh, we're starting to see more experimentation like with nike uh, but here in the States, we have Nordstrom with their Nordstrom local stores, which is more service-oriented format, as well as their off-price. Um, Best Buy is experimenting with doing a format which leverages their warehouses, but using live streaming for sales associates to help customers. So I think there's a starting to be a realization. Uh, to me, it's kind of the next wave of innovation of retailers saying you know our kind of one size fits all or maybe it's two size fits all you know stores web is is starting to become more hybrid so maybe we have fewer kind of standard format flagshipy kind of stores but more satellite locations that are either more singular in purpose like pickup or maybe folk more focused in terms of of product offering so that i think is the next you know, big move the dial strategic way of experimenting. It's just much more capital intensive. You know, it's a lot easier to run A-B testing or a bunch of personalization campaigns or maybe experiment with, with store pickup or something like that. Those aren't necessarily trivial, but they're not as game-changing as saying, you know, we're going to have different formats and over time we will close some stores, relocate some stores and introduce these new, more focused formats. One of the things I'd like to talk about on the show is, is this idea of making mistakes. And I feel that mm -hmm. many, many companies, well, actually as a human nature, we're afraid of doing that because we sure. don't want, yeah. you know, we don't want to fail. We don't want to be seen as we didn't know what we were doing. And I right. think this is an important part in, 
in every aspect of life and for retailers as well is actually, you know, how can you, how can you be testing new formats, new ideas? Sure. Some of them can be expensive, but how can you kind of limit that and to be able to say, okay, actually this is worth pursuing more, but instead right. of just sitting on your laurels and just, yeah, as I said, waiting for the world to change in your favor, which is obviously not happening anytime. Yeah. Well, I sometimes joke around that um, if I were going to be better at, at um, consulting on innovation, I should have had a psychology degree rather than an MBA because I do, do think that, it, as you said, it's, there's a human nature to uh, being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to fail. Um, and certainly there are a lot of cultural, I mean, more societal, but also company-specific um, practices that perhaps keep people from from taking those risks so i do think if you're going to be successful in innovation there are a lot of things you have to do you have to hire the right sort of people if you're really trying to push an innovative agenda you have to push people that are wired to say yes as opposed to wired to say no you have to give them the tools you have to create a process to support them and you have to say it's okay to fail i often will ask clients tell me about the experiments you've done in the last few years and tell me about what worked, what didn't, how you, how you evolve from that. When they tell me about things that didn't work, well, sometimes I discover that they haven't done anything, right? There's nothing, <laughs> you know, it's, well, one of the, one of the quotes I have in the book is from my friend Seth Godin, who says, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. And so when you go into an organization and they say, well, you know, we really haven't tried anything significant in the last five years, tells you a lot about it about the culture but sometimes there'll be companies that'll say oh well you know we tried two or three things and i said okay well what happened to the people who worked on that and you know one of the things that is real discouraging is if if an individual and i've experienced this myself many times personally as well as uh, teams i've worked on where if the perception is if i go to work on this new thing you know my career is over if it doesn't work um, rather than say, that's actually the sort of experience we want our leaders to have. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, if you, I mean, if you mess up for other reasons, but if, if it's a legitimate try and you work hard and it doesn't happen to work out, you still have a future. And I think companies like Amazon are well known for creating that culture of experimentation, of trying a lot of things. Cause that's the other thing that people miss is they study, study, study. And then, you know, it's ta-da, here's our one big idea. And I can tell you, for example, I worked on, I won't give too much of the details because they yell at me, but I worked on a, a new venture at Neiman Marcus and we spent so much time studying it and developing a pretty sizable budget for rolling it out. And for various reasons, the initial iteration of it wasn't really what the market needed. And then we got to a place where we kind of kept it going for a little bit, maybe because we were afraid to admit defeat. And then ultimately it essentially was, was shut down. And it would have been far better, number one, to have put more resources on it at the beginning because we also tried to do it in a cheap way, basically, uh, where we weren't risking too much. And so the, the whole mindset towards innovation was, was messed up. If it was a worthwhile idea. You should give it enough resources to give it a chance for success but you can design it in such a way that it's more agile. Like you're not putting all your eggs in one basket and then you go down a path and that's the only thing you've kind of got in your portfolio and it doesn't work out for whatever reason, maybe just bad timing. I mean, this was during the financial crisis, for example, so it's hard to make it 
work. It had nothing to do with the idea itself. So you, you have to have a portfolio approach. You have to be willing to fail fast. You have to have a process to support it. So it's not, it's not easy to do, but I think it's actually pretty easy to look at companies that consistently produce uh, innovation and apply a lot of those principles. Like it's not a big, big secret as to why some companies consistently develop innovation and others haven't had a new idea or a successful new idea in two decades. I think a lot of that comes from the top. If you always think that you have to be right on everything that you do, you're not going to be starting new experiments and other people right. are going to be coming up with ideas that might potentially you think are not, you know, great. And so having that culture of people coming to you with ideas and experiments and actually not putting, as you said, not putting all your eggs in one basket. You don't yeah. have to just try one idea and that's the only thing that you focus on and that has to be the right thing. It's, you know, how do you do right. small experiments and then what metrics do you use to be able to actually judge whether that's going to be going forward or not? But as I said, I think that that is something that is part of the culture from the very top. And talking about that, in terms of this idea of experimentation, what do you think is necessary in our retail leaders now? Well, I think you, number one, have to be obsessed with the customer. And, and I don't mean, I mean, there's a lot of lip service given to being customer obsessed or customer centric or whatever, but I'm always impressed by leaders who are not only hogs for data, you know, want to, want to see the data, but also are out there uh, talking to customers. They're in their stores. They're in many cases, like when I worked with Nike a number of years ago, one of the things they did before they started their consumer direct offense was they absolutely used a lot of customer data and customer research and studies and those things. But they also had their team travel around the world to see what other companies are doing. Not necessarily, I mean, they did look at their more direct competitors for sure, but they were also looking at what other companies were doing in related industries, you know, the hospital, I mean, the hotel business, uh, financial services, uh, restaurants, et cetera, and not just uh, in the US, they were going all over the world uh, because I think you can glean some insights from other kinds of companies that are in the customer experience business to, to get clues. So all of that is, is part of trying to understand customer journeys and where where they're going. Um, I think you know it's become a cliche in terms of being inclusive, but I think it's, and, and I mean inclusive in the broadest, sense. I mean, certainly uh, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and so forth, but hearing a lot of different different voices of people that don't necessarily see the world the way you happen to because of the way you were brought up, where you were brought up, whatever values. So I, I think bringing all that in is just a good practice. Like I was always taught early on to, to listen to diverse perspectives, but I think you know we're in a much more diverse world increasingly diverse world where information and, and cultural mores are being shaped by a lot of different forces. So you have to do that. And then I, I, I guess the third one I would say is kind of a, I don't know if anybody talks about this anymore, but we used to talk about it when I first had my first management job of, of kind of a loose, tight style where you have to be very clear on the vision and why you're trying, where you're trying to get to uh, but build an agility into that. Um, so it's tight in that you're kind of creating 
this this general roadmap, but loose in accepting that there has to be a lot of experimentation. You have to give a lot of flexibility to to people and their teams to accomplish those objectives, and then you know be constantly monitoring. Because I feel it's like I don't know if you've ever heard this story about. I don't even know if it's true, but uh, I heard this guy speak at a conference once. Who uh, said he had a friend who was a uh, an airline pilot. And he said, oh, you know, when you're flying from New York to Hawaii or wherever it was, um, do you ever get off course? And the guy said, oh, yeah, we're off, uh, uh, we're off course the entire flight. And he said, what? What do you mean? And he said, well, we're not always way off course, but the way the avionics were, that's the term, is that, you know, we're, we're constantly, you know, <laughs> moving a little bit to get back on, on track because there's no way to pick perfect course because of, pressure and and uh the breezes there's and no, all this kind of there's stuff no to success right and so i think having that ability particularly today i mean i think you you could get away i mean certainly early in my career there was a little bit more of okay we have this one idea you know the store format let's say and we're going to build a few of them and if it works we're going to make little changes and we're going to build some more and then we're going to build some more and it's going to take us you know 10 years to get to, you know, you think about Starbucks, let's say, right? I mean, it had kind of the same formula for the first 20 years of their, their success. And it was a matter of figuring out that model and then figuring out what locations worked, but it was kind of rinse and repeat over a long period of time. That's really a strategy for, for a different age. You really can't do that anymore. So I think you, you have to have that vision and that North Star, or whatever you want to talk about it, but you're constantly adjusting. And I think now you just have to build, I mean, absent from the pandemic, you know, everybody, I think in the pandemic world talked about, oh, we need to have this agility. And I think that's true, but I think you needed to have tremendous amount of agility before the pandemic. It's just, it's played out in a different, different way um, because of the unique forces of, of the coronavirus. I mean, for sure. I mean, the pandemic has completely taken us totally by surprise. We were not prepared for it. And I think whenever there mm -hmm. are moments crisis, that's when you have to be the most adaptable because you just don't know which direction it's going to go. And that's really difficult to, to navigate because most people want certainty. And when you're talking yeah. about having a clear vision, I think that's the only thing that leaders can really provide is that certainty of where you're going, the purpose, is the, the, the why, the reason why you're doing these things right. in the first place. And then the journey there, you know, you could be you know, delayed on a flight to go somewhere or, you know, you have to navigate the air currents because, you know, something, you know, there's a, a new thing that has come that you didn't anticipate or completely out of the blue. So that, that analogy works very well. And do you think... Yeah, can I just, I'll just quickly add a, a couple things about that. I, I, I do agree with you, um, but two, two thoughts. One is, one of the things, and, and I do... I've talked about this for a while. I talk about it in my book. Is it, it shouldn't take a crisis for retailers to innovate. Um, so you can, I mean, obviously, some people believe the pandemic was predictable, but you know, as a practical matter, like you can't, you don't know when <laughs> something like this could happen. And if you build in too much safety, there's a lot of things you probably wouldn't do. So I hope the lesson from the pandemic is not, oh, we have to be so conservative and have so much cash and build up you know so much flexibility for you know a crisis which may or may not happen again so i don't think that's the lesson but it does bug me that a lot of retailers 
uh, implemented things that they should have implemented years ago. Like I'll, I'll just tell you one company I worked with for years, we were talking about their need to break down their silos, their need to blend physical and digital better and, and do things like allow the customer to see store inventory online and do buy online pickup in store. And, and all of those things were good ideas years ago. And some of their competitors were actually doing quite well having implemented it. Then coronavirus hits and they implement all these things that have been on the shelf in about two weeks. And there was a lot of kind of high-fiving about, oh, wow, look how innovative they were. And I was kind of like, no, actually, that's great that you did that. But you, you know, the crisis, you know, your, your crisis was that you were losing relevancy with consumers. That was the first crisis. The COVID was, a, was an additional crisis, which was largely outside of your control. Well, your, how you responded was within your control, but you know, you didn't, you, that you didn't cause. So you always have to be focused, I think, on the things you can control. And I, I definitely think it has taught us that we do need to be fundamentally more agile. But the next, I mean, I hope we don't ever have, uh, I hope we get through this, this pandemic uh, more quickly than it looked like we were going to. I certainly hope we don't have another one. But there's a lot of slow motion crises that retailers are experiencing. It's just many of them don't realize that it's a crisis and they think what they're doing is enough. I mean, that the main reason I wrote the book was really for that retailer who slowly sinking into oblivion and thinking that a slightly better version of mediocre is enough to win. And there's this kind of slow death. And maybe some exogenous factor will accelerate their demise or, or maybe motivate them to take more action. But you have to really go back to the fundamental question of whether or not you're gaining relevance or not. And hopefully the ones that have enough life in them have navigated this crisis. Mm. What three pieces of advice would you give these companies for the next five, 10 years? Well, in general, I would say go deeper on customer insight, particularly, um, well, I guess part A and B to that. One is really understanding the customer journey, um, but also doing it under a bunch of different scenarios. You know, Don't make the assumption that all customers are alike, or even if you have a fairly uniform um, customer focus, customers may act differently depending upon the sort of product they're buying, right? Sometimes they're going to value convenience and price. Other times they may want more, more sales help, particularly if you're in a wide variety of categories. So don't do it too simplistically. The second is, is building that culture of experimentation. Um, you know, always be testing, always be trying new things, celebrate failure, move on. The third's probably um, around understanding what uh, in, in the book, I talk about these eight essentials of remarkable retail, and I, I try to make the distinction between what I call table stakes and what I call differentiators. And I think there are a lot, well, I know there are a lot of retailers that are doing what I call innovating to parity. In other words, what they're doing just kind of keeps them in the game. It's become, a, in some cases, a customer expectation. So it's not differentiating you. Or maybe it's an advantage for three months, but it's very easy to copy. So make sure you really understand where you need to get to to be competitive. 
because that's changing all the time and you may have fallen behind. But more importantly, ultimately is, what are those things that are really gonna make you remarkable? And because one of the things I talk about in the book is even very good is not good enough anymore to what we were talking about earlier. You used to be able to get market share because you were somewhat better than average because customers just didn't have the choice, they didn't have the access. Well, now that customers have this information, they have choice, they're not gonna shift from a brand they like to yours because you're just slightly better. That's almost never happening. So how do you really set the bar higher? What does that look like? And it might be more than one thing, um, but that's what you need to be striving for. You need to, as I mentioned earlier, you need to not think that a slightly better version of mediocre is likely to make much of a difference. So being really explicit about that and how you're gonna get there. I think a question you didn't ask, I think one of the challenges for a lot of legacy retailers is they're so invested in and real estate, you know, particularly form of real estate, maybe a supply chain that operates a particular way, you know, a lot of cultural norms, technology. And, you know, it's a very difficult situation to realize that you've got so much to change and you might have to blow up what you've got all this legacy investment in. So those are the retailers I worry about the most. I don't worry so much about a retailer that's already pretty agile or you know, has five-year releases. I worry about the department stores on the high street <laughs> that are committed to these massive buildings and this assortment and a typical way of doing a business that that probably have to invest a tremendous amount of capital and develop a multi-year plan to be relevant today, but to your question more where they need to be in five or 10 years. Well, the good news is maybe they have time <laughs> and if they've got the capital to do it, uh, good, but they've they better get started. If the readers were to only read one chapter of your book, what would that be? <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. Um, I have not been asked that question. Um, I'd probably say, uh, I guess it's chapter 18. Um, which is on essential number seven, which is memorable. Because, I mean, there's there's definitely a little bit of setup that would be helpful to understand what that chapter is about, but that's the chapter that really talks about this idea of how are you gonna set the bar higher? What does that look like? And in particular, one of the things I try to do, and it's, you know, it's just a challenge when you're talking about retail, which is such a big, diverse industry. Uh, but in addition to explaining what I mean by memorable and what the components are, I give, I think it's about 13 or 14 different examples of ways to be memorable. So it's not a one size fits all, you know, Starbucks, Nike, you know, some of those companies, what they do to be memorable is different than a digitally native vertical brand might, might be doing or, or a company that maybe is more uh, commodity like. So hopefully there's, there's some anchor points for a given retailer to go, okay, yeah, this is more like my situation and here's more of a strategy that would be right for me um, as opposed to right for Amazon or, or right from some of these larger companies. I think being memorable in the age of TikTok and 15 second videos is if you can be memorable in this age, then you've really figured it out. You've really got it. Well, and one, one thing I'll add, which kind of skipped over, but one of the reasons why I call it remarkable retail is 
is this idea and memorable is kind of, you know, very much a subset of that, but there's really two components to remarkable. One is probably the way we commonly think about it of, oh, that's really different. That's really unique. That's, and, you know, so it's remarkable from a, from standing out. And certainly that is important in social media and other ways. But the other part, which is very much stolen from, uh, again, I'll mention Seth Godin from his book, Purple Cow, is this idea that the, the ideas that win are ultimately over the long term are the ideas that spread. And so remarkable in a sense that people will literally talk about it, will share it with their friends and family. So that's very much an idea around a net promoter score or other things that, that other people have talked about. Um, but I think it's incredibly important because number one, if we're talking about the story of this great uh, restaurant or shop or whatever that we went to, that is an indication that it resonated with us more emotionally. And I think that suggests that loyalty would be stronger. But if we're willing to share it with our friends or our networks um, or you know, through other social media, that's free marketing, essentially, right? That's more authentic marketing than the brand saying you should buy this because we say you should buy it or because we give you a discount. So, um, so if something's not memorable, if something's not intensely customer relevant, then people aren't likely to talk about it. And then you're just likely to get lost in the ethos of all the other places you can go for that coffee pot or that sweater or whatever it is. Mm. Shareable content, as we're talking about the age of 15 second videos, TikToks, and right. having, having something that immediately connects with you on a human level that you think either makes you look great or, you know, really resonate with that message and you want everybody else to know. And, and I think that's tough. Another quick quick thing I'll mention is this, you know, I talked about this value, end of the value spectrum, convenience spectrum, and then more the experiential brands, I, I think you could say. But I do think from being remarkable, customers, and this is overly black and white, but I think it's become so easy for us to just get something off our, our to-do list. You know, if it's, oh, I just have to get some toothpaste or I have to do whatever. And places like Amazon or, or Walmart or, you know, hypermarkets, whatever, they make it very easy for me to do that. It's not really an emotional thing. I, I'm just meeting a basic need and I'm trying to get a decent product at a decent price and get it off my to-do list. That's a very different sort of psychological, you know, it's very sort of the contrast between left brain, right brain. But the, the most remarkable brands other than someone like Amazon that's just, you know, has everything and is super convenient, they do make that emotional connection. Often the products we're buying says something about the way I want to be seen in the world, right? It's not always rational. People spend, you know, uh, 2,000 euros for a handbag, right? That's not because, oh, I'm getting this incredible function. You know, it's not, it's not a cause-benefit trade-off uh, in the way uh, you might think about something that's more functional. It's the story of that brand. It's the way it makes me feel. It's what it says about me. So, so that's another way I think you know, companies, retailers that have been too product-focused, they, they think about it in too functional a way. And sometimes that's fine. There's lots of functional products and it's about features and benefits and it's about price. And now convenience has become more important. But the brands that I think are really, really successful, they have that emotional connection with the customer. And that doesn't make it all about, you know, one click, you know, have it show up in a box the next day or get me the lowest price, right? You're, you're paying a premium 
and that's almost certainly going to give you better economics. And so that that kind of fork in the road between the functional versus the emotional, the left brain, right brain, or however you want to buying versus shopping, a lot of different ways people have described. I think is a very important thing to understand um, whether you're fundamentally one or the other. But to my earlier point about customer journey mapping, some brands or some retailers certainly have a mix. You know, if I'm at a furniture store, I may be buying a mattress for very functional reasons, but the sofa that's going to be in my living room that everyone's going to see, that may be more of a statement. So even the same retailers for essentially the same customers may have different motivations. And so it's worth understanding that at a deeper level. When you just mentioned that, it's like the shopping versus buying where one is an experience and the other one is is functional. You just need it and you don't even want to think about it. And I think the distinction between the two is really essential. And I think what you're saying is, is that the shopping aspect, the more emotional side is where you can really compete by innovation and being bold and taking risks. Because when it comes to convenience, there are lots of uh, retailers out there that are doing an excellent job in that. To me, that's kind of the best example. And I know it's a little bit different around around the world. You know, we, in the States here, we've got way too many of these mid-priced department stores. But I think a great example of why those department stores, I mean, sometimes people make it about shopping malls or whatever, but that's important. But I think part of what happened to, not necessarily talking about the you know high-end department stores, but the ones that are more in the middle is it used to be those were the only places where you could go to see a wide variety of products across a reasonably wide spectrum. Well, now, whether you've got Premark or H&M or, you know, you, na you name all the different places, not even talking about e-commerce for a second, but all the different places you can go just to get clothing or sheets or a coffee maker. So that being a little bit of everything to everybody is really being nothing ultimately to that many that many people so that's what i mean about being stuck in the middle it's not clear to me you know you could argue whether you know marks and spencer or macy's or some of these other big moderate department stores whether they should have gone higher end whether they should have gone smaller whether they should have gone lower end uh but the reality is they're now sort of trapped because they've got this massive investment in these very big stores where they're trying to be a little bit of everything and there's really good competition for just about everything they sell, except you could argue maybe perhaps for their private brands. So you really do have to pick a lane um, at, a, at a certain point and move much more aggressively because it's not like uh, competition's getting any easier and it's not like consumer needs aren't evolving and it's not like technology isn't continuing to evolve. So. Uh, it's it's difficult for those legacy retailers. Absolutely, if I had a magic formula, I, I would have put it in the book and said, or charged a lot of money for my my secret formula. <laughs> no, it's um well, it's it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Steve. Thank you so much for oh, joining you. and hear your insights and you know to talk about your book a bit more. What should I do with the old one? I have them both. <laughs> Uh, have a bonfire or whatever, I think, <laughs> donate it. Uh, no, well, I appreciate that. I mean, the, the, the second edition really, I mean, there's a lot of the core ideas that uh, carried over from the first, but I really tried with the second edition to update it specifically for some of the impacts uh, of COVID and, and flesh out a few of, 
a few of the ideas. Um, but I like to think both of them are valuable. It's just, you know, from an ego standpoint, one of the things, because my book, the first edition came out right as COVID was really taking hold. And of course, I finished writing it before we were even talking about the pandemic. And so I remember reading it um, or getting, getting interviewed about it. And the person said, well, gee, you know, you don't even mention COVID. And I was like, well, that's when I wrote it. I nobody was, nobody, <laughs> maybe six people in Wuhan knew what was going on, but we certainly in the rest of the world didn't. And so I started to get very self-conscious about, well, like this really big thing happened in retail and yet, you know, I don't, I don't mention it. So some of it is just updating it. Some of it, frankly, which I, I feel is, is kind of sad is that there were a bunch of retailers that I had in mind that I thought, you know, did have a chance for transforming. Uh, but I, you know, I really thought they had three, four, five years and COVID just really compressed uh, those, those timelines. And certainly if you were in the apparel or accessories business, I mean, that was particularly bad if you were selling office equipment or, or things for the home, you know, you kind of got lucky in a weird way. It's hard to say anybody got lucky from COVID, but there are certainly certain categories where uh, you barely could keep up with business. Like that happened. So there are businesses for sure that have benefited from, from the changes. Um, it's just more about mm -hmm. how do we adapt to it and go forward? Yeah, exactly. Well, and you're never, not to be overly spiritual about it or whatever, but I think we get, we get this idea that we control a lot more than, uh, <laughs> Or we, we think we can control a lot more than we actually do. And if uh, I think that's one of the lessons from, from COVID is you think all the studying and all the analysis is sure. going to make you ready for something like a pandemic. I think, I think hopefully you learned that, you know, you're can't wrong about ready. that. I'll be ready for everything. So as you said, needing to be agile and anticipating the needs, but also staying, staying current and paying attention to what's going on in the here and now and being flexible to be able to weather some of those storms. Exactly. Well, Steve, where can we find you? Well, I'm, I'm usually shamelessly promoting things all over the internet, but uh, the best way is probably my website, which is Stephen with a V, P as in Peter, Dennis.com. And on social media, it's at Stephen P. Dennis. So I'm pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then we have the Remarkable Retail podcast which we will be back to weekly episodes in september fantastic great well thank you so much steve a pleasure to have you on the show and uh, wonderful to get to know you <laughs> thanks likewise stay safe <laughs> thanks steve thank you so much for joining us here on anatomy of a leader podcast i hope our guests leadership journeys resonate with you and make you feel like you too can take on the world if you'd like to be mentioned here on the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and leave a review, and I will pick the best one to mention in our next episode. Tell a friend, share on social media. I'll make sure to support you there also. And let me know what inspired you, what changes you've made, and how you too succeeded against all odds. You can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn with the handle MariaHVO, or just search for my very long surname. And if you're hiring leaders to take your business to the next level, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Again, that very long surname or Maria HVO. Thank you again for being here on Anatomy of a Leader. Bye for now.